I think, you know, we're kind of uh, in the very first inning of a long story that's going to unfold about what we know and what we learn and what we do about uh, uh, all of these impacts of COVID-19. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. And welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued in the Sled. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Lex Reception and Blue Jay Legal. Lex Reception is a close-knit team of virtual receptionists dedicated to professionalism, warmth, and a 24-7 availability for law firms and attorneys. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at bluejaylegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com bluejaylegal.com. On October 2nd, 2020, President Trump announced that he and his wife, Melania Trump, tested positive for the coronavirus. And most recently in the news, Barron, the son of President Trump and Melania Trump, has also tested positive. Well, after disclosing his positive test, President Trump was taken to Walter Reed Hospital. Questions and rumors circulated about his condition following that. But in a statement, White House physician Dr. Sean Conley said, I'm happy to report that the president is doing very well. He is not requiring any supplemental oxygen, but in consultation with specialists, we have elected to initiate remdesivir therapy. Well, in press conferences from Walter Reed, medical professionals cited HIPAA privacy laws for not sharing specific details about the president's health, leaving much of America guessing about his conditions. After a controversial car ride around Walter Reed by the president, questions remained about the exposure of COVID to those closest to him. On October 5th, the president was released from Walter Reed, and he gave a thumbs up before walking inside the White House and taking off his mask. Well, now back at the White House, will this experience result in any change? To date, approximately 215,000 Americans have died from coronavirus. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing the health of the president, We'll discuss whether it's a national security issue not to know his condition, take a look at White House staff members and others who've tested positive, the duty of employers to keep employees safe, the controversy regarding masks, the impact of the president's words regarding the virus on the American public. To do that, we've got a great guest. His name is Harry Nelson. He's the founder and managing partner of Nelson Hardeman, the largest boutique healthcare law firm in Los Angeles. Harry is also the author of two books, From Obamacare to Trump Care, Why You Should Care, and the United States of Opioids. Welcome to the show, Harry. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Well, Harry, let's get a little bit of background. I mean, in the past, we've, we've heard about President's Health. We get an annual report about physical checkups. But we, do we really get the true information about the American president? It's a good question. I mean, I think this administration has been, uh, has certainly, you know, been raising questions even before now about how much transparency we're getting and how much information we're getting about the president's true health condition. We certainly have historical examples of presidents who, uh, who were operating with severe health issues that we didn't know about in the pre-modern era, but this White House has certainly, um, you know, reinvigorated that issue. Well, I mean, there was a, if we go back in time, very few people know about FDR's condition. 
Right, exactly. That was that was the one that would come, came most to mind. Right, we we know that for uh, his last term, there certainly he he had had a, a severe, severe stroke, and that Eleanor Roosevelt was uh, was a significant player in making decisions. So um, you know, I think before the television cameras were there, and before the transparency uh, and and the and modern media were around, there there probably almost undoubtedly were presidents who had more severe and serious health issues. But uh, the the modern modern era doesn't leave a lot of uh, of room to hide what's really going on uh, with the health of the president. Right. Well, and now we've heard that the president has got in COVID, and presumably uh, within days recovered from it. What what's going on there? Yeah, it's been it's been a strange uh, a strange sequence, right? We uh, we definitely seem to have gotten a, a, a part of the story, but some really key missing pieces, right? We we learned. We learned of the president's COVID diagnosis without ever getting a clear answer on the actual time that he knew. You know, there have been suggestions from some sources that uh, the president may have been positive at the time of the original debate with uh, Vice President Biden and a uh, whole series of other questions about other aspects. Did he did he or did he not need oxygen on the day before he went to the hospital? You know, what is he still infectious? There are all kinds of questions on which what we're seeing is a, a sort of picking and choosing of what health information to share and what to sort of slide by without actually uh, disclosing. What have you to say about the super spreader events that the uh, CDC has laid at President Trump's feet, the Amy, Amy Coney Barrett ceremony in the Rose Garden? I, I think these are, I think it's fair to call this a super spreader event. We have a specific definition of an event in terms of the number of contagious contagion cases that come out of an event. And so, um, I mean, I think this is, a, it's problematic and it's clear that the White House was not taking as serious as possible an attitude both in advance of the event and, and or, or after the fact. I mean, the most, the most sort of jarring thing for me to see was that the uh, Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, was actually uh, explaining that he wasn't coming to the White House because he was uncomfortable with the uh, you know, with the White House procedure. And, and I thought that was really telling because here's a, here's somebody who's clearly an ally of the administration who's distancing themselves and, uh, from the, you know, the way that COVID is being handled uh, in the White House. And so uh, I, I think it's I think it's troubling. And, and I hope that it will uh, prompt some kind of change in how the administration begins to uh, to act in terms of prevention and in terms of follow up uh, and, and contact tracing and in all other respects. Well, what kind of liability flows from that? I mean, if I were to sit in my first year torts class from law school, I might be convinced that there were a few torts committed. It's a great question. You know, there's we're, there's kind of an un, a lot of unanswered questions around what kind of exposure to risk with respect to COVID, you know, is going to lead to liability. The, the area where I think the, we have the most clarity is in places like the workplace where there's a duty to protect the safety of workers under federal and in many cases state law under laws like OSHA, for example. So I think that for the White House staff and the people who were there because their job required them to be there, I think there is a significant risk in potentially establishing an unsafe workplace and using those standards as the basis for for some uh, liability claims. I think for people who are showing up as guests, uh, you'll remember uh, from law school that uh, every you know you, your the the duty owed to you by a landowner in general is controlled by um, by your status. Were you invited on for a business purpose? Are you just there as a guest for for other purposes? And then we have to remember that the federal government is protected 
by all kinds of uh, tort protection laws, the government has to actually allow you to sue it. So I don't think we're going to be seeing lawsuits come out of the White House, uh, uh, the Rose Garden event, or 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 these other these other events. But I'm I'm sure we'll see some of these cases make their way to the court. You would presume at some point that there might be workers' compensation coverage for some of those employees. It's a big fight, right? We've heard, we've already heard the president and the uh, and, and a number of members of Congress talking about passing laws to avoid workers' compensation um, risks, and I think that's I think that's a that's a that's something that we're going to see coming up in the uh, in the very near future. How do you strike the balance between President Trump's HIPAA rights and the public's need to know and whether there's a national security consideration in that? You know, HIPAA does not get to the issue of of when, you know, there's an overriding public interest. There is a public health exception that allows HIPAA to be overridden by public health authorities, but HIPAA does not weigh in on how much of a right we have to know about our elected leaders and 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 people in power, so there is some degree of choice. What seems striking about the uh, president's situation and Dr. Conley's comments, for example, is that uh, the White House was trying to pick and choose to put out a statements that it thought would you know in- ensure some confidence and not panic people, uh, but was also trying to keep things off the table. And HIPAA also doesn't work that way. HIPAA you know basically allows for uh, patients to choose to share their information. And once you're going to start to share your information, it doesn't, the kind of uh, suggestion that, that, that Dr. Conley was making that, you know, that some information is, is, is okay to share, but other information is protected by HIPAA, it, it seemed very self-serving and, and, and inconsistent with HIPAA. What do you think about these non-disclosure agreements that Trump attempted to get people at Walter Reed to sign? Do government employees, can they even sign an NDA? Yeah, it's very strange, very non-standard, and I think it's it's troubling. You know, I, I look, we have a long history of hospital staff and even medical professionals acting inappropriately. So I understand where it came from. We I've been involved personally in a whole bunch of lawsuits where celebrities went into particular health systems and and people, doctors and, and hospital staff looked at the records and and shared it with Us Weekly or TMZ or some other source that would pay money or, or just shared it out of curiosity. So I totally understand that the, the you know, the desire not to, uh, to have people sign these agreements, but, but our system is set up to actually include severe penalties and to make sure that people who engage in that kind of misdemeanor are dealt with appropriately. It, it seems really odd to me to, to expect people to sign NDAs, you know, as they would in other contexts. That's just not part of the healthcare landscape. Well, it seemed apparently that some doctors refused to sign those NDAs, and then they were prohibited from treating President Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it wasn't not, no laws were violated in that process. It's just it definitely sort of gives some context to you know how to think about how this administration is um, you know is is trying to 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 shape the narrative and limit people from 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 doing anything that might 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 compromise what their the story that they want to tell is. Right. Well, here we are with, you know, the White House disclosing that he's, you know, tested positive. Then we see him off to Walter Reed and then he gets released from Walter Reed. But there is no indication from anyone at that point that he tested negative. What is there a concern about that? Yeah, I think that's a really big question. And it also seems that along the way that when they I think I believe there was a statement that they were relying upon these rapid tests that have a high degree of error in making determinations of, of of level of contagion, it should be troubling to anybody who's who's taking this seriously that the White House was so non-transparent about 
what exactly the president's status was and and how there could be so much confidence, you know, without knowing what kind of viral load he still might he still might have been shedding. Like I, it just none none of it gives gave me any confidence, and and I don't think that anyone has a basis to feel. Uh, to, uh, any, in any way assured by the uh, by the statements coming out of Dr. Conley or, or or anybody else or the White House, right? Well, and and here we have the White House pretty flagrantly disregarding the CDC's instructions to wear masks. A whole host of people, some 30, 30, 35 people at the last count around the White House have tested positive for it. Some people are saying, you know, this is karma. This is what you get. But on the other hand, there's another group saying that this is, you can't protect your own family. You can't protect the White House. How can we expect you to protect the country? What's the message that's being sent here? I think it's a, I look, I think it's a fair question. I think we're, we're in a very polarized time. So people are going to read this really differently. You know, I think, I think a lot of people, certainly on the, um, the, the anti-Trump side were, you know, if not taking uh, uh, some level of schadenfreude were sort of heartened to see that the president's uh, uh, casual attitude towards this whole issue was was uh, was actually you know coming back to sort of to bite him. But I think that the bottom line is that you know it's it, this should this should be concerning to everybody, and it should be a lesson. I I, I hope that that this is going to ultimately be a positive model for for why this why we need to be even more careful and more forthright. In all of our interactions, I, I think this is going to be a moral lesson for for political leaders going forward, um, just because it's been such a uh, troubling story that has taken our attention off of other issues uh, that we need to be focused on. All right, certainly. Well, before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. We'll be right back. 80% of callers who reach voicemail hang up. Hiring an answering service means that you never miss a lead. Lex Reception can take your calls live, handle legal intake and schedule appointments in a professional manner for less than the cost of hiring an in-house employee. There are no contracts, and the service is quick and easy to set up. For 50% off your first month's service, visit lexreception.com forward slash lawyer to lawyer. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at bluejlegal.com. That's blue, the letter J, legal.com. Bluejlegal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Harry Nelson. He's the founder and managing partner of Nelson Hardiman, the largest boutique healthcare law firm in Los Angeles. Before the break, we've been talking about President Trump's mask policy and uh, the consistencies with the CDC instructions, and also, you know, the ramifications to the general public. There have been instances now where People have gone to work and gone to parties and they have kids have gone back to school knowing that they tested positive. What are the consequences of that and what can be done to curb that behavior? You know, we, we, we have a lot of tools at our disposal. First of all, you know, we talked a little bit in the first segment about what the liability risks are. But the one thing we have that uh, the, the tool that's already in place is under the uh, various emergency acts that are out there that give states authority to uh, uh, and local government's authority, it's certainly possible to put penalties on people to put to impose fines. We've been seeing in New York State in particular, a really aggressive approach of 
finding people who are who are behaving inappropriately. We've been seeing that more oriented towards events and people who are just you know organizing uh, large gatherings in defiance of of public health orders. But I think, and we've been seeing here in here in Los Angeles. I've been out on the street and I've seen police giving out tickets to people. You know, one of my own sons, thankfully, was in a he was in a uh, public park out, out in the near our home, and he uh, he was wearing a mask, but he was with a larger group, and then and a couple of the kids weren't weren't wearing masks, and uh, and those kids came home with tickets. So I I think that we have those are the tools we should be using, right? I, I think that the public needs to we need carrots and we need sticks to motivate people to do the right things. Those are the tools that I think are going to really solve the problem. I, I I'm not a big believer that we're going to see a huge burst of of, of personal liability, you know, that people are going to be bringing lawsuits, but that's just my take. Right. Well, we've also seen this happen before some hundred years ago, the 1918 pandemic, any lessons we can draw from that, that we aren't really following now? You know, it's so interesting. I'm finding personally that I didn't know nearly as much as I should have about the 1918 pandemic. It was particularly strange for me to, I found out that my, um, my grandfather for whom I'm named died very young and he had of a, of a weak heart. And I, and I, and when I heard about it in the family, I never connected it to the, to the Spanish flu until um, we, we, we talked about scarlet fever. And it turns out that that was a, he, he and his sister went their whole lives with uh, health effects and, and were some of the millions of people who did so as a result of the Spanish flu. And given our current healthcare system and given the immense amount of learning that we're going to be doing about COVID-19 in the next few years, I, th- I think we're going to see that there's going to be the same kind of a long-term health impact. And right now it's coming up in the form of all kinds of uh, stories that different people are having with COVID of the lasting uh, impact. And we're trying to understand uh, what it is. So I, I think we're going to see a whole emergence of a new public health attention to kind of lingering consequences of this virus. And I, I also think we're going to we're going to see I think I think some of the steps that we're taking now in terms of infection control and attention to hygiene, our attention to air quality and sanitation are really going to change how we uh, how we work, how we live and how we operate in our public spaces. So I, I think, you know, we're kind of uh, in the very first inning of a long story that's going to unfold about what we know and what we learn and what we do about uh, uh, all of these impacts of COVID-19. Well, Harry, on Twitter, the president claimed, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Nick Cordero's wife got on, uh, the Broadway actor who lost his life to COVID, got on social media and took issue with that. And it appears that it has affected a lot of people. What, how does the president reconcile what he's saying with what's happening? Personally, I think this is a tricky issue. I, I I think that it was a little bizarre to see the president supposedly struggling significantly, needing oxygen, and then really minimizing COVID. You know, so so I think that just to have him then make this rosy, you know, don't worry, don't be don't be afraid of COVID, don't let fear dominate your life statement was was a little that was a little bit troubling. On, on the other hand. I do think that I, 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 my own observation is people are living on a continuum of reactions to COVID. And on one side, you have people saying this is a hoax or, or, or this is nothing. We should all, this is no different than the flu. And on the other side of the continuum, you have people who are really living in very kind of shut down ways, which are creating other risks, right? We, we're seeing unprecedented suicide risks and severe depression and anxiety. And I, I, I personally think that we need to find messaging that's somewhere in the middle that's calibrated to the different risks that different people are facing, that is giving people 
some way to have a positive mindset, even while being very careful. So I think the president made a big mistake in terms of being so casual and so flippant. And I think his campaign advisors, from what I read, were very unhappy with his failure to kind of take advantage of the empathy that he might have found in that moment. But but at the same time, I do think that the message of people trying to find a way to live with this would be a positive thing. You know, finding a, finding that balance of being careful but not being completely uh, paralyzed is, I think, important to the health of America. Well, President Trump also said that he has a complete and total sign-off from White House doctors, that he can't get it, he can't give it. And Twitter, at least one of the social media entities, flagged Trump's tweet. What are your thoughts about that? I think we're not getting enough clarity and enough transparency on what the data show. And we certainly, you know, everything I've been reading about COVID, and I've been following the CDC and other organizations' uh, data suggests that there's a high variance of how quickly symptoms appear. Obviously, we know that some people are asymptomatic. And then there's also a lot of variance in how quickly it goes away and when people are no longer shedding live virus. And we have a, pheno- a strange phenomenon showing up in the workforce and the workplace of people continuing to test positive for weeks and weeks after they are no longer shedding virus. But I, we just don't know enough. So for these very rosy statements to follow so quickly when they clearly serve the president's goal to be back on the campaign trail and out having events without any kind of sharing of of, of data to back up exactly how they know these facts, it gives me pause. Well, and you said in the beginning or in the earlier in the beginning of the segment, you'd hoped that people would learn from the experience. It doesn't look like that's happened. I think, look, I, I, you know, I don't know if this uh, president is going to make significant changes. He seems to, you know, be somebody who doubles down and on everything and doesn't. He's not somebody who easily acknowledges mistakes and pivots and conciliate. He's not somebody who's quick to be conciliatory. But again, I, I do think other. I think we're seeing from other political leaders, particularly other Republican leaders, a really different message. And I think. I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing within the Republican Party and in the national leadership to really figure out what the right message is. And, and I, I think we're already seeing a lot of signs that, that it's not going to be the message that this president is making. So in many ways, I think he's going to be the negative example for many people. But we'll, see, we'll know a lot more in the next couple of weeks. Right. And well, let's turn that on its head, or at least turn it on the other side. As society... Where do we turn for trustworthy information? I mean, the the administration has gone so far as to attack its own uh, CDC doctors. The President Trump has gone on and had a specialized treatment that doesn't appear to be available to very many other people. Where do we turn? Who do we look to? And what should we be doing? It's a tougher and tougher question. I'll tell you it, personally. I have I have started a practice, and my my wife is also sort of started a practice of every time we read a story or we're watching television coverage, we we kind of tip, we turn over to see what the other side is saying, right? So if we're going to watch CNN, we also want to know how the story is being covered by Fox. And I think the more that you are getting information from multiple news sources, it becomes easier to see through where we're getting excessive or inaccurate messages from one side or the other. There's no perfect solution right now, and there's no one magic bullet. We're seeing a lot of delegitimization of this, of one source or another. And I guess my, my biggest message to people would be when you're consuming media, we're living in a time when so there's so much delegitimization that the safest course is to actually try to hear how multiple 
different publishers of information, content, you know, generators are are describing the world, and 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 from that, you know, we get closer to reality and 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 closer to identifying when people are are putting an overlay of their own biases on the stories. It takes a critical mind, doesn't it? It's certainly not an easy time to just uh, believe everything you hear. Or, or alternatively, you know, you, you know, there's just so many people. I, I I meet more and more people who are really locked in ideologically to one side or the other. It's becoming a more a, a more rare and precious thing to find people who are really trying to approach things critically. So uh, I, I hope that I hope that that will come back into fashion. Let's hope. Well, Harry, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. So I'd like to invite you to share your final thoughts and along with your contact information. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, my contact information, uh, I can people can find me at uh, can reach me directly at h nelson at nelsonhardeman.com. My law firm website. I also have a website, harrynelson.com, where I can be reached and which has information about my books and some of my the media uh, content that I'm putting out. Would love for people to come check that out. You know, I think for me, the ultimate takeaway from this this whole episode has been that uh, uh, the COVID crisis is really evolving quickly, unexpectedly, and is presenting all kinds of new challenges. And I think that we have to understand that we're in a really long game. We're not going to know the full picture of, you know, how this virus uh, transmit, what it does, uh, and how to stop it for for some time. Hopefully, a, a year from now, we'll be looking at a vaccine really limiting it. But I, I, I still think there will be big questions for years to come. I just hope that people will will be careful to really keep exploring and and keep an open mind about whether the data they're relying on is is stable. And, and I think that we I hopefully will 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 be able to take lessons away from from some of the pain and suffering that others are having and be able to, uh, to join together in wishing and praying for the health and recovery of as many people as possible. Well, thank you, Harry. And I'd like to take this moment to thank Harry Nelson for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much. It was really great to be with you. Great. And for our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.